Thank you, Joe, for those prayers. I think he's back teaching uh, in the Shine Kids right now, um, which he loves the kids, and it was a wonderful prayer um, on this Father's Day. Good morning again, church. Pastor Brenda is on much-needed vacation right now, so we are excited that she gets to get some great rest. And so um, let's dive in to this series um, we're in the heaven and hell and everything in between series, and today's the week that we get to hell. Yeah. <laughs> Here it is. What is Pastor Wade going to say? Hell and judgment. Now, I heard from many people last week that it was the first sermon they had heard on creation care, and maybe today will be the first sermon you hear on hell and judgment. I don't know. It was not the first time I have heard a sermon on hell and judgment. In fact, it's what I heard most growing up. I didn't know there was really another way of thinking about our faith. And this quote kind of captures something um, in the way that my faith was shaped early on. God loves us. God offers us everlasting life by grace, freely through no merit on our part. Unless you do not respond the right way, then God will torture you forever in hell. Huh? And I didn't really have the huh until years later, and I thought, how does this make sense? Why is that the narrative I've been giving? Why has Scripture been picked in certain ways to present this view? And, you know, I came to realize that fear, and you probably know this too, is a very powerful motivator, right? Religions can use it, politicians can use it, our parents can use it, um, because it can be effective to control people. And Christians are not the only ones that have a market on using fear and hell as a way to motivate belief. This is a, uh, the Ha Par Villa Hell Museum in Singapore, and a picture of that. Um, we had a, a similar version here with the Tiger Balm Gardens. But I have heard from several of you that were kids in Singapore that your parents took you to this hell museum when you were little for the very idea of scaring you into behaving and being obedient. And the website says children can enter hell free on Tuesdays. And so, so yeah, so fear is something that we know motivates us, but there is a better way to do this. Every Sunday night at the, at the church I was growing up in, it was, and I'd said this earlier in the, in the series, if you died on the way home tonight, do you know where you would go? And this kind of scary images of hell were what were used to motivate me to want to believe in Jesus. But there is a different way to motivate and a more theologically and biblically sound way to motivate, and it's love. And God is love, the word that is ascribed to him as a one-word definition. And so how do we integrate this idea and this teaching of hell and judgment with who God is? So we're going to unpack that today, but before we do, let's pray. God, I thank you that you, in fact, are here in our midst. And I pray for each one of us um, whether this is a newer topic or whether we have our own sort of scars from this 
idea and this actual fear that has been used to shape us, God. I pray for the freedom that we sang about today, that, that your love, that you came running to us from heaven. And I love that lyric and that image, God, because it depicts who you are in your heart for us. And so give us an understanding today as we navigate um, several texts. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So a quick recap of kind of where we have been in this series. And the image on the left, again, there's this image that so many of us have been taught, um, hopefully not so much at community church, but it's a very common image of how God's plan is working. We're here on earth, there will be a judgment, and you go to heaven or hell. And we've spent several weeks on unpacking the different parts of that. This first image says that God is going to come back and he's going to pull all the righteous people out, then he's going to judge everyone else, and they are going to hell. And hell means that you are tortured and conscious forever. That was the image I had. However, I do not believe that is the biblical image. Rather, on the right, this image of creation, of heaven and earth, from the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth over and over again, We get this idea of creation, and in those first two chapters, they're completely overlapped. God is meant to be ruling in his temple, which is Eden, which is his creation, and we're given kingly and priestly duties to live that out. Of course, we know the fall comes, and people choose a different way to go. Adam and Eve begin to make their own decisions about how they want to worship and live, and we see that sin is really kind of this failure to accomplish a purpose, their original vocation that Pastor Brenda spoke on two weeks ago. And so in the fall, when sin enters in, it unleashes powers in all of creation, all of the world, not just in humanity, but the creation itself. And so God begins his rescue plan of humanity. He chooses a people to be his representation, to become a blessing for all nations. The promised land is really a stand-in for Eden, this restorative place. This God's mission to bring heaven back to earth started with his people. He creates the tabernacle as an overlap space, and the tabernacle is really, again, another stand-in for Eden, this holy place where we can connect with God And this is this overlap that we've been talking about with heaven and earth. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, this is happening. This overlap is happening. God's kingdom is happening, and it starts now. Yahweh has returned to his people. Yahweh has returned to his temple, and his people are his temple. Heaven is where we become more fully human when heaven overlaps with earth. Hell, on the other hand, is where we become less fully human, less fully what God has created us to be in his image as worshipers of him. But in order for new creation to arrive, judgment has to be rendered. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. So Paul is telling us that God's plan has been to reconcile some things, a few people, reconcile this and that, 
No, to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus and through Jesus' work on the cross. And we've looked at that work on the cross and the different expressions of how that saving work happens in a previous sermon. So he will reconcile all things. And that brings us to today, hell and judgment. And first, I want to look at judgment. Now, God judgments, God's judgment, you know, functions within, let's go back to this um, image, this judgment functions within his desire to reconcile all heaven and earth, this grand plan to bring it all back together. But in order to have that completely overlap, there has to be a judgment, okay? Because judgment is really aimed at healing, at restoring, at revealing our sins and and cutting out the cancer that threatens to infect our whole body. The first thing we learn about judgment is that judgment is a surprise. Judgment is a surprise, the way Jesus talks about it. See, the Pharisees thought that salvation was, was for the few, for the privileged, for those who could obey the law perfectly, for the very religious people, but Jesus is always upending their understanding of judgment. So there's this reversal, and he says those who are on the inside actually might find themselves on the outside. Those on the outside might find themselves on the inside, and he gives the parable of the wedding banquet. And the king said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Jesus gives this parable about bringing people to the wedding banquet, this union, this celebration of his people. And those that were intended to come did not deserve to come. So what does he do? He goes out and he invites everybody, right? This is not how weddings functioned. Have you had a wedding where you just went out into the street, looked for people, whether they were in the, you know, the, on the gutter, whether they were in the store, hey, come to the wedding, come to the wedding. No, you have a list of people you know, the people that should know you the most. And Jesus upends that and says, actually, this is going to look like it's totally different than you expect He flips the script, and he invites everybody. And we see this in different parables, the the sheep and the goats. The goats find themselves on the outside of God's blessing based on how they lived. So these stories, these parables should give us caution on thinking we might know too much. If we think of ourselves as the insiders, That's usually where Jesus has his harshest critiques. But they should also give us humility. Humility. As we come to the scriptures, as we come to our own relationship with God, as we think about God's gospel, his good news to this world, we see these images of God wanting everybody to experience it. Okay, so there, are, there is a judgment, and I think there are four reasons judgment must happen. And there, there's two books in this particular week that I'm leaning heavily into. The first is called The Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. 
And the second one, I've been looking at this whole series, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Great books. If you want to dive in more um, to these topics, I recommend them to you. So four reasons judgment must happen. The first is the deception of appearances. The deception of appearances. So if healing all of creation must take place, and it must take place, then the truth must be told. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Paul lets us know in his letters that we need to wait for judgment until the appointed time when things will be revealed. Jesus will expose the darkness of what is hidden. There's a judgment because things are not what they seem to be. It's truth-telling, and the truth has to be heard. Paul says it this way in Romans 2.16. He says, This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So we have to tell the truth about the world before it can be made new. That which is hidden must come to light. We are seeing that with the church right now, globally. I follow a lot of the happenings in the church in the U.S. The Southern Baptist Convention released an external report a couple weeks ago about over 700 pastors that had committed abuse, and the denomination itself was more interested in protecting the pastors than protecting the victims. See, the truth has to be told, friends. Things have to come to light in order for new creation to arrive. Any Marvel fans, Marvel comics um, out there? I, I am. This comes, if you know WandaVision, this comes from WandaVision. And Wanda, the character on the left, has created this world, this fake world where she's bending everybody to her will. She's got these kids. But it's all make-believe, right? Until truth comes out and truth sweeps through this whole city that she's created in her image and things are restored to how it ought to be. So in order for new creation to come, there has to be an exposing of what has really gone on here. We have to uncover the abuse. We have to uncover the oppression. We have to uncover injustice. The second reason judgment must happen is all is not right in the world. It does not take any convincing to let people know all is not right. We see this in the very early chapters of Genesis in Genesis 4 where Cain kills his brother Abel. He, he hates his brother. He wants to silence his brother, and he kills him. And yet the killing of Abel does not silence him. Genesis 4.10 says this, The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Death doesn't silence Abel. It magnifies it. Now, whether you're religious or not, it, it's, it's easy to see that all is not right in the world, and there's this idea of justice that things should be put right, things should be made right. Those that harm others should be held to account. We hear of God's response to his own people and their cries for justice as they're enslaved in Egypt. He responds, right? We see responses to injustice in this world of genocide, racism, slavery, exploiting the poor. All these are dynamics of old creation. 
and they must be exposed. They're not part of God's creation. They're not going to make it into new creation. They're not going to make it into that overlap of heaven and earth. The third reason creation itself is in bondage. Creation itself is in bondage, and Pastor Brenda talked a little bit about this last week in creation care. Um, So creation is set free when the sons and daughters are set free. We see in Romans 8.22 this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So earthquakes, tsunamis, COVID, cancer. We see creation, we see the fall, the impact of sin on our creation. It's in bondage. Four. God's people have become a part of the problem. Israel, the church, the vehicles that were meant to bring blessing to the world have not always been. They've worshipped other gods. There's scandal. There's abuse. I already mentioned the one story. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So we get included into this judgment Again, in the wedding banquet parable, the intended guests were too busy to even come to the party. They can't be bothered to show up. And when these guests, these other invited guests, they decided to mistreat, actually, the king's servants in bringing the message. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And we know there's persecution in this world. We know that Jesus' disciples face persecution as well. Those that were intended to be invited have turned on God's plan. So everyone wants justice, I think. They want a judgment. Um, Usually we don't want a judgment for ourselves. We want a judgment for everybody else, right, in what they are doing. But I think we do recognize we want an end to all of this oppression, right? All of evil we want to be done away with. So where does all of that evil go? It doesn't make it in to new creation. All of that evil goes to hell, okay? Now, hell is actually not talked about very much in the Bible. It's not the main story of what is going on. And we've highlighted that these last few weeks. Um, now, hell itself, the word hell is an English word, and so it doesn't, you know, the, the original scripts in Hebrew and Greek don't say hell, right? They have different words in Hebrew and Greek that have been translated as hell, and these are the only four words that get translated as hell in scripture. The first is an Old Testament word, and it's on the top there. It's sheol. It's a Hebrew word. It means the grave or the place that you go when you die, And we see this word used in Psalm 1610, because you will not abandon me to the realm of Sheol. And some translations will pronounce it Sheol, some will say the dead, and sometimes Sheol will be translated as hell. Now, in the New Testament, is written in Greek, Hades is a word for hell that is probably most similar to Sheol. It's a place where the dead go. There wasn't a lot of thought or theology behind what that place will look like, what happens in that place. It's just you died, and that's where you go. We see um, Jesus using this word in Matthew 16. He says, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. 
All right, two other words. Uh, tartaro or tartarus is only used once, and that's in Second Peter. Um, only used once in the Bible, so it's a difficult one to translate. We're not going to spend much time there, but it's a one-time-off thing. The other word I want to spend some time on is Gehenna, because we see this word actually Old Testament and New Testament. And Gehenna is a word translated as hell, and it has a rich history in Scripture. Um, we'll start with the Old Testament with this, Second Chronicles 28.3. This is the king. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So this is Israel worshiping other gods. This is Israel killing their own children in worship of these other gods. And where did it happen? It happened in this valley of Ben-Hinnom. This valley of Ben-Hanom takes on the word Gehenna in Jesus' time. And it was an actual place in Jesus' time. Gehenna was outside the city. It was the city dump. It was where the trash was lit and burned up. So this word Gehenna is a word that Jesus uses about 11 or 12 times in the New Testament. So valley of Ben-Hanom becomes Gehenna. Jesus in Matthew 5.22 says, And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. Okay? So Jesus is talking in, this, in Matthew 5 about the dangers of anger in our heart. He's talking about that that anger in our heart can lead to destruction, like the fire in Gehenna, right? It's a reference back to what God's people were doing themselves in Gehenna, this self-destructive pattern that they were in, and Jesus warns his disciples. It's, it's a bit like Tim Keller says, hell then is the trajectory of the soul. He's warning people, if you live out this way, it will create your own hell. It re- will create the type of person that you will become. So we learned three things about Gehenna. And I know I'm going fast here. Um, there's a lot to cover. Um, so Gehenna, first, the fires were lit by human hands. This is where Israel would go and light fires, sacrifices um, their own children to other gods. This is in Jesus' time where fires were outside the city burning up the trash. Gehenna is an inevitable result of a way of life. It's, it's a furthering of how your heart, you're leading your heart. What are the things you're leading your heart to? It will lead to destruction. And it was outside the city. It was an actual dump. And so this, this is a different view of judgment when we talk about Gehenna. It's not a one-off sort of mistake that, oh my gosh, I'm going to be judged for that time I did. It's more like this took time to develop in your life. It's going to lead to destruction. For Israel, it was a generational pattern that led them to sacrificing their own kids and to worshiping other gods. So the sin and judgment, the sin is happening outside the city. This is important because in Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem coming down, right? And this sin, this evil is happening outside the city. God is literally going to get the hell out of earth, all right? I'm going to try to see how many times I can use the word hell in the sermon. It's a, it's a rarity, so stick with me. So he's going to return, and he's going to evacuate, not the people away from earth, but he's going to evacuate evil out of creation. 
Hell is a cordoning off of evil, a cordoning off of the destructive power of injustice. It's a containment for it. When hell is spoken of, it's used to warn religious people, right? It's never used to motivate non-believers to turn to Jesus. So in Revelation 21 and 22, the last chapters of the Bible, we get this picture of new creation. It says the old order of things has passed away, and we get a picture of old creation, those things that don't fit into, old, into new creation being outside the city. So hell is exile. Hell is separation from God. Because sin is self-consumptive. Sin will be its own punishment. It leads to death. All right, this is really uplifting stuff, right? But I hope this will help us understand and actually impact how we live our lives. That's the whole idea of this. There's a book, and I was only able to read um, bits and pieces of this book. Um, it's called Four Views on Hell. It, it's put out by um, four evangelical um, theologians in the U.S. who give four evangelical kind of conservative views of hell. And so I want to unpack these views for you to give some, you know, taking all of these scriptures that we have in the Bible, which we're not looking at all of them today, people have come away with, Christians have come away with different ways to try to make sense of what hell is. This book offers also another way of talking about that. So the one that I grew up in is this, this is a grid here, if you want to take a picture of that. We're also putting all of our PowerPoint slides now online on our YouTube description after the service. Those will be up there. So on the left here, you have the, the different views of hell, the names that have been given to them. The first is eternal conscious torment. <laughs> and that's exactly what it sounds. It's forever. You're aware of it, and it is full of torment. And maybe most of us grew up with this idea of what hell was going to be like. It's a belief that on the last judgment, those that are unsaved will be tormented forever. They will continue to exist, and they will be conscious, and they will be tormented. Um, scripture, um, so evil here is, is restrained. It actually continues to exist. Evil continues to exist, but it exists in hell. And the fire is to produce suffering. So um, we get lots of images of fire in Scripture. And then one of the passages they, that might refer to is in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about an eternal fire and an eternal punishment. The second main view, annihilationism, and this is kind of a view of people like John Stott and others. Um, and in this view, those that after the last judgment do not turn to Jesus, they are cease to exist. It's not a forever torturing. So evil is destroyed, right? Into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is self-consuming. It burns everything up. So the fire destroys. People are not suffering sort of eternally. Um, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus teaches about a limited sort of physical suffering that we might endure, not an everlasting suffering. A third view is called ultimate reconciliation. This is where everyone lives forever, okay, and the unsaved will be refined and restored to God. So what happens in this view is all things are converted. Evil is converted. So if you were acting 
in an evil way, you're actually converted and transformed. Okay? So evil is converted, it's transformed. The fire is a refining fire, a, restore, a restorative fire. We might, and have sang the song, Refiner's Fire, right? So Luke 3.6 talks about all people will see God's salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Acts 3.21 says God will restore everything. So these are the three main views that Scripture talks about. There's a fourth view, and we might think of purgatory as a Catholic view, but there are a few Christians that, that believe in purgatory. There's not too much scriptural evidence um, for purgatory, Matthew 12, 32, maybe. But purgatory is this idea of how do we reconcile all these different scriptures that seem to be giving us different images. And so I put it up there. It's, it's talked about in the book, but I have not unpacked it myself. And so we get this, um, you know, I would say options, if you will, about how hell is presented. And when I was growing up, I didn't know anything other than this view <laughs> Like, that was it. And I thought, that doesn't really sound like it's compatible with the God I read about in the Bible. And so these other views, are, they're not new views at all. They've all been around for you know eons, really, um, are different ways of unpacking this and ways that I resonate with more than this first view here. I'm not going to resolve all the tensions for you, um, but we will in July have a part two to this. And also, I want to have you have a chance to ask any questions that you have about any of the topics we've been covering in this series. So um, we'll have a QR code, I think, next week, or you can email the office and we'll get to those questions. Okay? I think what these views are trying to get at is how do we reconcile the character of who God is, that God is love, and his, his giving us free will. How do we reconcile that God is love and he gives us free will? God doesn't force us to follow him. He doesn't force us to choose him. He doesn't force us to worship him. And I don't think he will force us into new creation if we don't want it. So each of these is really kind of a, a trying to reconcile those two realities. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it and when he says the doors of hell are locked on the inside. It's this idea that, that sin becomes its own prison cell, and if we want out of it, God is not the one who's wanting us to stay in there. And we all know that there are parts of this world that do not align with new creation. What are things in this world that are not aligned? War, me-first attitude, slavery... What things in Hong Kong do not align with new creation? Cage homes, the income gap, racism. In your work, what doesn't align with new creation? Backstabbing, cutting corners, exploitation. In your school, bullying, privilege, comparison. In your family, dysfunction, abuse, favoritism. In your life secrets, shame. There's no place in new creation for those things. So there's a place that they go, and it's called Gehenna. 
when we read of Gehenna, when we read of hell in Scripture, I don't think it's so much directed at the eternal state of your life as it is to the trajectory of how you're living. I think it's directing us to how are we living now? Because our life matters right now. What patterns in our life are cementing our character, are shaping us to be the type of person that would do evil against another? I love this quote. Um, He's a Russian novelist. I'm going to butcher his name. Alexander Solzhenstein. (laughs) And he says this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And that is true. That is true for me. And I'm pretty sure it's probably true for you. So when we talk about judgment and hell, we're talking about something that should impact how we live our lives. It's not just something for somebody else. It's what should impact us. Scripture seems to indicate that evil is put outside the city. Can they come back in? Revelation 21, 25 says this, On no day will its gates ever be shut. This is New Jerusalem. This is heaven and earth overlapped. For there will be no night there. The gates of heaven, the gates of new creation are never shut. What does that mean? (laughs) I don't think we're supposed to speculate too much, but it's a hopeful image about God's desire to reconcile all things. I am convinced that that hell is the love of God refused. When Jesus comes back, he talks about every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. I, I hope that God's grace will be irresistible to everyone that when we see his grace, we could not help but bow down and worship for those, all of us, those that don't know God now, those that do, that his grace would be so irresistible, we would want to trust and follow him. I'm also convinced that nobody that calls on the mercy of God will be refused. God always responds to his people. Why is judgment good news? Well, it's because we're not the judge. (laughs) Jesus is. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That is good news, church family, because only Jesus can do this. None of us can do this. And I trust Jesus' character. I trust his compassion. I trust his grace and mercy. I trust when I walk with people and they talk about loved ones that have passed away, when they talk about difficult situations, I can't provide the answers of what will happen, but I know I can talk about a Jesus who is full of love, compassion, and mercy. We all know we have missed the mark. We've failed at our purpose. We all need a Savior. We all need forgiveness. Each of us has patterns of old creation In us, I do. Selfishness, pride, anger. God wants to transform these, church. 
wants to redeem them. He wants to restore them. And the sooner the better. I hate the question, if you died on your way home tonight, do you know where you would go? But what about if you could live a redeemed life, if you could live a restored life, if you could live a healed life, would you want to take a step towards that today? And that's Jesus' invitation to us. Not scaring us out of fear, but a desire for wholeness, a desire for restoration of relationships, desire to redeem everything. And that includes us. We remember his incredible love as we come to the table. Jesus says, I want you. I want to redeem you. I want to restore you and all the places that you live in. He says, take a step towards me today. Today is a great day to take a step towards Jesus. If you want restoration in your life, take a step towards him and the healing that he offers. As we partake of this meal, as we sing and we worship, reflect on how you can take a step towards him. He has taken a step towards us and he has made a way for us to know that restoration and redemption. He sat around the table. He said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus, we confess our need for you. I confess my own selfishness, my pride, my anger, God. God, I confess my wanting judgment on others for what they do confess my own self-righteousness, God, the sin of self-righteousness. God, we confess ways that we've used fear in controlling others. We know that's not how you desire us to be in relationship, God. So you came and you gave. You loved. You sacrificed so that we could have life. We thank you for, for your forgiveness, Jesus. We thank you that you welcome us in. We thank you that the gates of new creation are open and that we can enter. We thank you for this gift of grace, this sustenance, this bread and this cup that we can partake and know redemption now. We can know restoration now. Not that everything is perfect, but we can be on that journey with you. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. So we picked up the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat, church. He picked up the cup. So this is the cup of the new covenant. In his blood, in his work, And he offers that word of life to us today. Drink, church.